We can't. We have different experiences in life. We've walked different paths. But how can you share your path with me and I with you in a way that's peaceful and that we can hopefully at the end of this say, I'm still here, but I can see why you're there. Hey, hey, Brian Miller here, and welcome back to One New Person, the show where we take a closer look at chance encounters to remind ourselves that everyone and every interaction is meaningful. Today's guest is Parag Joshi, a high school social studies teacher and TEDx organizer. In fact, he was my TEDx organizer, and in that way, our lives have become inextricably intertwined. In this episode, Parag and I discuss the state of the public education system in America, what's changed about it lately, and where it's going. And of course, he shares his story of a chance encounter with lasting impact. There are so many gems in this episode that you may have to listen more than once. In particular, if you teach in any capacity, formal or otherwise, Parag's insight on staying relevant for your students is absolute gold. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy. All right, Prague, thank you so much for being here. Uh, actually, thank you for having me here. We're, <laughs> we're in your classroom right now. I really appreciate you taking the time. Sure. Great to see you again. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have, uh, and see you again. Yeah, again and again and again. We have, <laughs> we have quite a history at this point, which I'm sure we'll get to. But I wanted to start with your work, your professional work. You are, is it still called social studies? It is, the department. The department. So are, is your official job title social studies teacher? That's it. What does that mean to you? Oh, uh, well, it means that um, the curriculum, what we study in the classes that I'm asked to teach, is for us to look at different aspects of society. How do we live with each other? How can we live with each other? How might we better live with each other? Uh, and that's the focus of all of my classes, whether it's history or sociology or psychology or philosophy or whatever. That's always the goal is to think about getting students to think about what are different ways of organizing us as a social group? How should we live together? Yeah, before you even said the word philosophy, that was my first thought when you described social studies in kind of a... Um, you know, how should we live as, as a society? Uh, it's always struck me since we've met that you have kind of a philosophy. It feels like you have a philosophy background, do you? Uh, I was a philosophy minor undergrad. Philosophy minor, there it is. I've actually never known that or asked you that before, <laughs> but it occurred to me just now that every conversation I've ever had, it felt like so obviously that you had a philosophy. Because I don't think that those are natural questions that every social studies or history teacher, even history professors, build into the, the course. And to be honest, I was one of those students who history was my least favorite subject, right? And I'm sure you get a lot of those, it right? Can be. I hate yeah. history. You know, it's so boring. It's yeah. old. Yeah, yeah. Uh, why yeah. do I care? Yeah. Um, how long have you been teaching? This is my 15th year wow. teaching. Congratulations. Thank you. That's a long time it is. to be a teacher. And, and the industry has changed a lot. Yes. Uh, yes. I think students have had harder paths in life. Uh, than when I first began teaching. And I think schools are asked to do more to help students make sense of their lives and help them make positive choices. I think there's a lot of social work built into teaching now. H harder path in life in, in what way? Um, I think there are more and easier routes to not productive choices, whether it's easy availability of drugs or 
social media, you know, drug of your choice, um, or there are many, many ways to find, uh, let's say, not pro-social avenues of expression, especially when you have, at least in the context that I've been teaching in, more poverty and more single parents. So for me, it's like, do you have someone at home that wants to care about you and can show that care? And if you have that, then you have a good chance of making it through your teen years without facing some serious trauma. But if you don't, then school is the place where we're going to try to backfill and compensate for that as, you know, as well as we can. And it's not always enough. And that's, those are the cases where I feel the hardest with students is when they need, you know, five inches of love and care and I can only give them three. I have so many friends and family members who are teachers, uh, some of which have just entered the field within the last, you know, 10 years, and many of which entered and left it in the span of five years. Yeah. And that's, I think that's becoming a bigger and bigger problem. Yeah. Do you think the reason teachers are, new teachers are leaving so quickly is because they're just overtaxed with... They're burned out. Burned out, yeah. From and it's not because they can't figure out how to teach World War I. It's because they can't find a way to connect whatever they're teaching to students. So students today feel like they need to connect personally with everything because that's how technology is now hitting them. Everything's personalized. So why are you broadcasting classes to me? Broadcast doesn't work. Personalization works. Talk to me. What are my interests? Connect with my problems. How, how do you, because I mean, you're obviously either intentionally or not steering right into my wheelhouse here <laughs> with, uh, you know, connection. How do you manage? I think it's a great, it's a great theory. I know. I preach it at corporations and workshops and schools and colleges. And I always wonder how much of what I'm preaching as this theory of personal connection is actually implementable uh, for when I'm speaking to teachers, when I'm speaking to professors. I can feel they're all nodding and going, yes, that's what we need. How much of that is actually something you can implement within the confines of the school system? I think in social studies, it's, and maybe in English, it's more doable because the curriculum is, you have a little more autonomy, typically, with it. I don't know what this looks like if you're teaching algebra, and I won't suggest anything, uh, or science, or something where the focus is on external, the world around you, not the world inside you. That's interesting. Yeah, there, there is a big, big difference between teaching math or, or physics, which is the facts of the facts of the facts. And I feel like that you would think that would be true with history. Here's what happened. But it's not, right? It's not. There is what happened. But what matters is, so what? So what? The World War I happened. So one way I, I help students think about this, how I think about this, because I have to care. If I don't care about what I'm teaching, there's zero chance they're going to care. So I have to super care about how I'm presenting it and why it really matters. This is our earlier conversation about believing what you're saying and really believing it, not just thinking I have to believe, but actually believing it. Um, and I think there's some parallels there, actually. 
to our earlier conversation about faith healers, but um. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just I just have to take take a, a time out from that just for a second because I feel like for listeners, I heard somebody else say this recently. I was watching an interview and somebody was on stage being interviewed, and the interviewer. Uh, mentioned, oh, backstage before we came out here, we were having this conversation. And the guy being interviewed, he said, you know, whenever somebody says that, I feel like the audience is thinking, well, how come we got to hear the crappy version and you guys were talking about all the good stuff before? (laughs) If I'm teaching World War I, let's say, um, I have to pose it as this is really important to know, not because it happened. Who cares? A million things happened yesterday. We don't talk about them. There's got to be a purpose to knowing that it happened. There has to be a, well, here's the situation they were in. Can you think of a similar situation? Here was their answer to that situation. What can we learn from that response? That brings me back to philosophy. That's such a great, um, when I was a philosophy student and, and actually starting a PhD, like just about to start a PhD in, in analytic metaphysics. What would my life have been like had I done a PhD in analytic (laughs) metaphysics? Um, One of the things I studied a lot as an undergrad was free will. I was really interested in free will, and typically you think about free will metaphysically until I discovered Daniel Dennett, who is actually a contemporary philosopher still alive. People think about famous philosophers, they think, oh, they must have been dead for hundreds or thousands of years, but this dude's still teaching. Like, you can just reach out to him via email, and he's like a properly famous... He's right here in Boston. Yeah. And so... He wrote in this book, um, Elbow Room, Varieties of Free Will Worth Wanting, Mm. that free will is not a metaphysical question. He goes, of course we don't have free will. Not in the way metaphysicians talk about it. Of course, you you couldn't have done anything other than you did because it's in the past. Mm -hmm. There's no point even asking that question. Of course not. But free will is actually a moral question. The question is... If you were in a similar situation in the future, would you make the same decision knowing what you know now? And, the, and your ability to ask yourself that question, simply the ability to ask yourself that, if you can ask yourself that question, you have free will. Do you feel like that's part of what you're building into history and social studies? Uh, yeah, it has to be for the present. It has to have a use. Yeah. It can't just be inert. I mean, I like history for history's sake, but I'm weird. That's not normal. I think normal people would say, but what's it good for? It has to have purpose. So I'm a little bit influenced by John Dewey in that way. There has to be some purpose to everything you're doing in the present to solve present problems, not merely to know what happened. And we can probably attribute partially the success of Hamilton uh, being like this basically true story that otherwise is just like a really long, boring book. Which I've read. Which you've read. Oh, by the way, I have not read it. Does it read as well as you would hope? It's super dry. It's super dry, of course, right? But, you know, maybe there's enough, if you love the show and you love the CD, maybe you have enough momentum to get through it because you keep making references to different things in the play. But if you were just to straight read it, it's a straight, dry history book. It was never... You could tell he never intended it to become anything else. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. We're part of the genius of Lynn, right? To right. read that and right. go, and ah, this yeah. could be whatever. Yeah. And what a, what a great thing. Do you, do you see the future of teaching in actually social media? We, we've talked about it so far mostly as a, neg- a potentially negative connotation. But do you see a potential upside for this personalization and um, this immediacy for teaching? Like, do you actually, do you think 10 years from now, we're going to have the education system where there's just uh, somebody at the front of a room giving the same lecture they've given every, you know, this day, every year for the last 10 years? Or do you foresee it moving towards personalized video content that becomes more and more relevant? Um, I, I think it, this model has been stable for a long time. It's resisted a lot 
Mm-hmm. I think it will continue to resist, partly because there's a secondary function to schools, which is it's a place for teenagers to go and for adults to supervise them, since that doesn't exist at home anymore. We don't have moms that stay at home anymore. Mm-hmm. Who's watching the kids? We are. So that's a secondary, just basic, are they in a safe place where there's heat and food? Yeah, so that's the flip side, because I've heard a lot of folks in kind of my world arguing that education, that the educational system as it is, is finally about to reach its end, because, you know, if you can just get say you're, you know, a college course, a, you know, History 101, you just fi- go find the best professor anywhere in the world on that subject, get him to give that course once, record it, put it online for free or nom- a nominal charge. And anybody with a library, you know, you don't even have to have a computer at home. Then everybody in the world can get the very best version of that lecture for free. Level the playing field. Right. And the argument's being made, why would anybody spend $100,000 and waste four years of their life anymore in college, say, hearing lectures by subpar professors that are bored and have given it. But the flip side is is the connection, it's people. It's It's being being around other people. Right, so more than any other time I can recall in my 15 years, kids are just desperate for someone to listen to them. I mean, even though they love to text with their friends and post things on Snapchat and whatever, they are desperate for adult acknowledgement and interaction that isn't simply lecture at top down, which is what they get at home. I, I don't know if you, you saw, I'll have to send it to you. There was an article that came out recently that um, just blew my mind, which was about the technology gap, the divide between the rich and the poor is basically the inverse of what we thought it was going to be, right. that we thought that, you know, uh, this was in the Times, I think. Was it in the Times? Yeah, I, I don't know if it started there, but it ended up there, I yeah. think. Yeah, that it started out as... Yeah, by we, the time we, it's in the Times, it's already well known. Right, 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 exactly, <laughs> right, right, right. I don't know if that's where... I, yeah, but it, so... And here a janitor walked into the room. Hey, how you doing? Hey, good, how are you? How are you doing? Hi. We are, we yes. Are. We are. We'll be done in 20 minutes? Not even. 15 minutes? It's not 20 minutes, right? <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. So yeah, the, the, you know, the, this article was talking about the fact that there that we thought was going to happen is that the poorer uh, kids were going to not have enough access to the same technology, and now it, what's happened is the opposite. That human connection is becoming a luxury that only the elite can afford to give human interaction because the kids of, of um, I don't know, poor is the right word. I'm not sure what the right word is anymore. I feel I like it's, it's still, I think it's still the best word kids to describe that. Homes, yeah. P- kids in poor homes um, are being raised by screens because right. the parents are working multiple jobs or they're, they're, just, they're just not there. Yeah, yeah that's, that's yeah. crazy. We've been skirting around this for a while, this kind of idea of, of connection and how important it is. And of course, you know, the whole purpose of this show is to talk about the kind of chance encounters and the lasting impact that can have the ripple effect from anybody that you meet on a daily basis. And I think a lot of times we don't even realize what's in front of us. It's really hard to connect the dots looking forward, right? You can't. You can't know that this random two-minute encounter you just had is going to have any kind of impact on your life. Do you have a story or some stories? You do. Yeah, you are nodding enthusiastically. (laughs) Please. So um, I'll start with a, with a, this is really, this is something that normally it shouldn't have this impact, but it had a big impact on me. Uh, I was in a, a grad class, this was at Teachers College uh, in New York, in Columbia, 
and it was a class on school policy, and the it was called privatization, and uh, and schools to see to what extent can we privatize different aspects of schooling and get more outcomes that we want. So whether it's vouchers or other things that were this is now late '90s, early 2000s when this was really hot. I think it's kind of gone away now. Um, the professor had uh, a guest come in who works in the realm of public-private partnerships. So not in schools, but in other areas. And in this case, it was Dan Biederman. And he has a private company, but he basically gets contracts to run public parks. And he will do basically a uh, you know, renovation of the park so that it will both generate income for himself, his company, and the state that owns the park still. He doesn't own the park. He just runs it, he operates it, and bring a lot more people to the park. And uh, the, the park that he took over in New York at the time was Bryant Park, right next to the main headquarters of the public library on 34th Street, or 42nd Street, excuse me, uh, right behind Times Square. And um, so we were interested because we'd all in the class been to that park, and we'd seen it transformed into a place that was great to go during lunch and other times. And it was, you know, it used to be a lot of people doing drugs and people kind of stayed away from the park. It was like once the reputation gets ruined, it's very hard to bring people back to something they think is terrible. Um, but he was able to do it. So we were like, what'd you do? And he talked about how you know, sight lines matter and perceptions matter so much about how people see the park and how it's being used. And you have to bring, he brought a carousel in so that kids would come. He turned um, the grassy area and they had concerts going. This is before everybody was doing it. Put up a big screen and did films in the park. He put in some concession stands. But what I found the most fascinating is he put in tables and chairs that weren't nailed down. And they weren't benches. There were little circle tables and little free chairs, freestanding chairs. And we're all like, but why didn't they all get stolen the next day? This is New York. And he's like, oh no, they weren't that expensive. They looked expensive, but they weren't expensive. So it attracted people because it's, oh wow, this is a, you know, somebody cares. Somebody cares here about this environment. So I'm gonna care, I'm gonna come. I wanna be part of a place that looks like somebody cares for it. And I get to sit wherever I want, however I want. It's not benches where you're artificially, who sits that way? And he explained that he got the idea when he was in Paris to a, a park um, in Paris where they had these very tables and these very chairs. And he said, it worked beautifully. And he said, that's where he got the idea. He stole it from this, uh, from this park in Paris. What he said was he would watch and observe intently how people use the park. He said that it was like an obsession. He would literally sit there with a counter and count the number of people per minute that were coming in and out. And he would watch, how are they using the space? How are they using the space? How are they using this environment that I've set up? What are they getting from it? How are they interacting with it? And one thing he noticed was that whenever someone would go to sit down, they'd always move the chair before they sat in it. Always, like 100%. And he said, why are they doing that? Why don't they just sit in the chair? Because they wanted to make it theirs. That was his analysis psychologically of what was happening. By moving the chair, even if it was an inch, so it didn't really change anything, but now it's their chair and they could sit in it and now they take ownership of it and now they feel like it's their park. I'm comfortable here because I made it comfortable for myself. I remember thinking, even at the time, I was like, that's genius. And I, and, and I remember pretty much right from that moment, I said, this has a huge impact on teaching. For me, I'm in charge of the environment in the classroom. It's my park. But I'm also obsessed with how 
my customers, my students, interact with that environment. And I want to put items in the environment that can be manipulated, whether they're conceptual or whether they're physical, and they have to be able to move the chair because it's our curriculum. It's not my curriculum that they're playing with. Once they can move that chair, it's their curriculum. So what does that mean in the classroom? It means having questions that connect to them right away, pretty much from the start. I'll give you an example. Please. So <clears throat> we're doing um, a unit on uh, social class. And so to frame the whole unit, I start with a pretty controversial question, which is, so when you throw a controversial question out, someone, you're going to have a reaction. That's moving the chair. Right, right. So I ask them, is poverty a choice? You're going to have a reaction. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't not have an opinion on that. <laughs> yeah. So mentally what they're doing is they're turning their chair and they're going to sit down and they're going to say, here's what I think. And now you're in. Yeah, yeah. So it's not just physical things like the chair, but it could be conceptual things that suddenly make you want to be part of this conversation. I identify so much with that. <laughs> that was the first light bulb moment I had when I started speaking professionally, which was that my role as a speaker who's kicking off some conference is not to get the whole audience to agree with me, which is what I thought I was trying to do. And that if everybody's agreeing with me, probably I haven't said anything very interesting. Right. That my goal was to get people to walk out discussing whether or not they agreed with me. Mm. I love the visual of of turning the chair, of, of getting, yeah, moving it in some way. And, and as soon as you said that, I thought, I'm sure I, I must do that at every chair I sit in, no matter, even if it's already set in the exact perfect situation, you look at it, you just kind of, you just kind of go like that, and then you sit. Yep. Mine now. Yeah, this is my space now. That's, that's so fascinating. I've never even heard, I've never heard that concept applied to teaching. Is there any, like, there may not be, but is there any like, like the craziest or wildest thing you've ever seen a student do with either do physically or do mentally in a class that is like an example of this? Well, I think, you know, and this is something that I think you can relate to as well. Um, if you build the right environment where you've really thought about the goals of that environment and then you let students take it and take it for where it goes. So if you do a simulation in class or a role play or things that they have to inhabit in some way to personalize, if you like, but not in the way that people who talk about personalization sure. talk about it, which is everybody alone in their computers or something. I don't know. I have a different view of personalization, but because um, I think actually personalization has to be social for it to matter. I'm going to have to bring you on the next season and talk about <laughs> that. that I, I was like, if I go down that route, we're going to run out of time. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a book in here for you, by the way. <laughs> I, think, I don't know if you're, if you're testing some ideas now, but... Um, I mean, I think social interaction is, is where it's at. It's, it's the democratic impulse that I'm also helping to support in social studies. That's kind of one of the hidden you know, items that how can we peacefully discuss views that we're not going to agree? Because the most important questions we're not going to agree on. Yeah, we, we can't. We can't. We have different experiences in life. We've walked different paths. But how can you share your path with me and I with you in a way that's peaceful and that we can hopefully at the end of this, say, I'm still here, but I can see why you're there. 
the, the internet and the, the quick response and hiding behind the keyboard has kind of gotten us away from the goal of having, you know, kind of social debates uh, that we're all shying, where either they become so aggressive online, nobody's having them the way that they were meant anymore, which is the goal is not to change somebody else's mind. Like they go, why are you even arguing with them about that? You're never going to change their mind. That's not the point. The point isn't that I think I'm going to change this guy's mind. The point is that at the end of this, the goal is that we each have a better understanding of the other side. And the more you understand the other side, actually, the better you understand your your point of view, yep. right? Yep. And and occasionally, you hear something about the other side that makes you alter your own point of view. It, almost nobody walks away from a debate and goes, "You're right. I'm on your side now." I mean, that's that's not the goal of this, right? The goal is 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 understanding, not agreement. And that's typically a, a you know, if you study anthropology, especially, you know, as it was conceived of by Malinowski and others, the question was. What do you think? What do they think they're doing? That becomes the anthropological lens. What do they think they're doing? And I try to use that lens every day because it's easy to say wrong, bad, destructive, stupid, ignorant. I want to know what do they think they're doing, and they may not be aware of it. And that's the conversation surfaces that. One thing I can't do this interview without asking about is running TEDx conferences because sure. anybody who reads your bio uh, and decides to listen to this episode is going to want to hear about running TEDx conferences. That is how we met. That is our yeah. story. Uh, this is the first year since ours that you're n- you've chosen not to run it. You're taking, taking a, a break. you're taking a break from running yes. TEDx. So you've run how many? Three of them? Uh, three, and then I've done uh, something called Truth Talks, which was just my own version of a TEDx conference, but without all the manual. Right, so, manual. Right, so, so unofficial version, but that was actually um, completely student speakers Correct. when you did Truth Talks, and all the other ones were held here at Manchester High. Yes. So they were, are, they, are they technically TEDx youth conferences? Yes. They are, okay. Yes. So because for each of those conferences, there were at least two or three student speakers, and everybody else were professionals. Correct. I'm trying to think about what's the most interesting question in the time that we have about this. I, 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 I'm interested to hear from you. What is the experience like? What's that roller coaster from starting the process to seeing the final uploads hit YouTube? Oh yeah, uh, it's definitely a roller coaster. The beginning of it is optimism. It's the blank page. Yeah. It's the dreams of what could this be? Yeah. What could this be? Um, and then time has a way of slipping through your fingers and getting the right people. And you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm finding is very challenging each year is typically it's everyone who's never done something like this, students or adults. So it's figuring out how best to get them to a point where it's like they've almost done it once and they can look back and say, oh, I wish I would have done it that way. Let's do it that way first. <laughs> to get them to do their first way the way that you would normally do a second way because yeah. you may never have another chance to do this, yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like that's something that you've built in more since the first time? Yes. Yes. Because f- at least from my perspective, if I if I might, the first time, I mean, we're, we were all doing it for the first time, yeah. but you were also doing it for the first yes. time. And I don't want to say it was chaos, but it was unstructured. Yeah. Do you feel like you've gotten better at structuring and guiding speakers along the process? Yes. And I've also gotten better at knowing how to get resources around here and make sure certain things happen in certain ways and knowing when people say yes, it really means no, or this person says maybe, you know, it's 
knowing what people mean, not just what they say. Um, because there are a thousand things that have to go right for this to work. And so you, it's very powerless feeling of like, on the day of, I have nothing left to do. I just have to watch the chemical reaction if it works. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, and if it fizzles, it fizzles. Do you feel like you've had any of the fizzled? No, I don't think so. I think there have been a couple of speakers where I was like, mm, I'm underwhelmed. Mm. I think they needed another two weeks. I've either attended the conference itself every year or years I haven't attended the conference, I came in advance and worked with the speaker, so I've been involved in it to some small degree every year. This year, 2018's conference was a triumph. I mean, I mean, I, I don't know if it got, they got any views. That's not what I'm talking yeah, about because yeah, yeah. that's a whole other ballgame. I was there the night before and I was there the day of uh, and the speaker's I don't know if you f- just found a better crop of speakers to begin right. with, if they were better prepared, if I don't if all of those things happened, but there were just terrific speeches this year. Right. I you know, typically I've known one person well enough to know ahead of time like to be confident like they're going to work out. Yeah. And this year it was, you know, Amanda Howerton who I is a personal friend. Oh yeah. And I knew that she would be fine. So like yeah. one one less thing I have to worry about. I should get Amanda on here. Oh my God, you should. Yeah, that just that just made me go. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Because especially because of the last minute changes that she made, I I would definitely need it because I. If I didn't know her, I would have freaked out. Uh, I didn't know her, and I freaked out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to get her on and talk about that. That's yeah. a whole other thing. Yeah. Kind of wrap this up here. You're taking the year off. Did you just need a break from the chaos and the, the, the responsibility of it? Yeah, and, and partly, you know, uh, I'm taking on other things at school. Okay. So I just can't add, 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 add because sure. 15 years of teaching, I'm, I'm worried I'm, you know, I don't want to burn out. That's a real possibility because schools were happy to give you more things to do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're competent. Do these five more things. Oh, yeah. That's, that's uh, what's, what's the 80-20 rule called? I forget what it's called. There's a, there's a rule for that where uh, 80, uh, 20% of the people in any organization oh, yes. do 80% of the work. Sure, and it holds through like literally every, almost everything in life. Yes. It holds. Yes. And, and the people who are really good tend to burn out more, right? Because they keep getting, oh, oh you can, if you can handle that, well, then just do this one other thing, okay. right? So... Well, I have to say, it's a gift that you've given to, I mean, obviously, to me, it changed my life, but... Well, you know, you're the uh, cause celebrant in this, uh, <laughs> in this TEDx world right now, well. so, I, you know, I've, I've probably referenced you a, a thousand times in the last, you know, whatever years, more well, than that. Well, it was obviously a gift to me, but more, more than that, and, f- you know, viral, you know, mind going viral, yeah. that was, that was well, super forget, cool. I, but. I, I'll tell you what the value of your talk is to me, of course... It gives a credibility when someone, you know, has a, breaks out, of course. But to me, it's showing to students, other speakers, like, look at this talk. How, look how amazing it is. Why do you think it's so good? What do you think went on behind the scenes? What does it mean to take a shot at something? I'm thinking of Hamilton's my shot, right? <laughs> and what kind of preparation would have to go into this? Is that something you would ever do is that how because that's the kind of speaker i want people like you who are like this is this is my shot and i'm going to prepare not i you know i deign to come and grace you with my presence and let me look in the morning and while i'm taking a shower so i'm going to talk about 
you've got to see it in a certain way for this thing to work. And so you've provided the guidepost to say, all right, this is the gold standard. What do you have for me? Well, I'm, I'm thrilled that it could, could be helpful uh, in an everlasting uh, kind of way. But just in general, to both the school and to the community, like I think, these, I think you're going to be well missed this year. I think people are going to be asking, um, why isn't there a conference this year? And when it doesn't happen, someone's going to go, wait, what happened? Where is the conference? And I think that's, that's a testament to everything that you've done. Well, you know, I, I think I, the reason I was, you know, excited about TED and, and still am, um, is because um, I really believe that ideas shape our experience. So again, this is Dewey, and it's not about the experience, it's the reflection on the experience that matters. That's about ideas. It's the idea of what is experience. What is this thing we call experience? And that's what ideas help shape. And those ideas are in play. They are in play. Well, that's a good place to end. Uh, Prague, I really, really appreciate your time. It's the holidays when we are recording this. Everybody wants to go home to their families and deal with in-laws that may or may not be showing up this weekend. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Sorry, that was just my personal thing happening right now. Um, anyway, so actually, you know what's funny? It's not even in-laws. It's my family. I just, it's, it's my family that's nice showing up this move. weekend. Yeah, like, yeah. No! That's just me not being ready at all, even though I've known for like six months that they're coming. So... Anyway, I know we both have to go. Thank you so much. And I will 100% need to get you on to talk more about like three different things that came up that I was yeah. like, oh, we need to talk more about that. We need to yeah, talk more well, about that. Yeah. And uh, maybe next year after you take a year off, maybe we can um, run a conference together. I, think I would love fun. that. Before you get a snack and get distracted, here are some of my favorite takeaways from this episode. First, technology is evolving rapidly, but it will not replace human connection. If anything, there is an increasing need for interaction and validation, particularly among Generation Z. Second, know your limits. It's okay to step back from a project, even a successful one, when you feel like you're in danger of burning out. This gap here may be exactly what Parag needs to recharge and come back with an even stronger TEDx conference in 2020. And for his community, I guarantee it'll be worth the wait. Finally, if you teach in any capacity, whether as a profession, in an informal mentorship role, or even as a parent, make sure you create an environment where people can move the chairs. I'm Brian Miller. This is One New Person, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.